This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. so much. I'm going to stand if that's okay. I have a PowerPoint and I want to take you through a little bit about how disparate impact has been such a central part historically of the Fair Housing Act. And the way that I'm going to do that is to talk about some of the cases that we've brought. I think that will set the stage for the argument that was held today in the Supreme Court, which raises the question for the first time in 45 years, is disparate impact should it be included or covered under the Fair Housing Act? Um, we'll get to that in a second. So I want to do a couple of things. I want to talk about the importance of this um, theory of liability and how it has made such a difference over the years. I want to talk about how we use it. I want to talk about what's at stake today in the argument and, then, and, and set that up for you. And then I want to talk a little bit at the end, last couple of minutes, about what would it mean if we lost that and how would we cope, how would we pivot? After I get done, Tara is going to talk for a couple of minutes about the specifics about how we have actually dealt with impact in the firm from a theory standpoint. Because I'm going to move pretty quick, but I wanted to come back and talk about some of the practice points which she has been involved in in her cases. Okay, the first thing to understand is that we are in an intensely segregated society. It has been that way for many, many decades. And it's the legacy of de jure discrimination and segregation. Just look at the maps. It, these maps show a picture across the United States. The green dots are African American, the blue dots are white. If you just focus on that, and the red dots, Asian American, Hispanic is the yellowish orange color. Just look, this is Detroit. Look at the divide. Look at the clear divide along Eight Mile Road. <coughs> Los Angeles, California. You can see, and this is one dot per person. These maps are amazing. One dot per person. You can see South Central LA. In Chicago, you all know Chicago pretty well. From the map, from the colors, you can just see how intensely spatially segregated we are. The same is true for New York City. You can pick out parts of Brooklyn. You can pick out Newark, New Jersey. Washington, D.C., 
the fault line runs right along Rock Creek Park, northwest, northeast. It is stark as day between African American and white. Same with Miami, Florida. The same with Birmingham, Alabama. Um, the same with St. Louis, where we've seen so much of the issues of race discrimination coming front and center in the last several months. The point is that, and Philadelphia as well, the point is no matter where you go in this country, we start from a premise that we live apart. All right, let's now fast forward to case that we brought starting in 2009. What we noticed was that in the, with this foreclosure crisis, it was not happening equally between African-American and white neighborhoods, that minorities were hit much harder as foreclosures rose. And from my work in lending discrimination, this was an article in the New York Times discussing this phenomenon, noting that this disparity between black and white neighborhoods came across no matter what the income levels that we were talking about. Foreclosure rates were much higher. And I raised the question, why? But at the same time, the mayors of the city of Baltimore and Memphis came to us and said, is this a civil rights issue? And my, as we started to look at this question, we started to go on the ground and do an investigation in Baltimore and Memphis to look at the statistics, and here's what we found. If you actually looked at what was happening, the foreclosures in the minority neighborhoods of Baltimore looked like we had fought World War II and had lost. If you looked at Memphis, it was the same way, but a different type of housing. Devastation everywhere. Baltimore is starkly segregated. You can see the African-American and white communities. And when we looked at the foreclosures, it's hard to see from all these dots, but the dots are actual foreclosure filings. The point to take away from the map is the foreclosures follow the race lines. The intensity of the foreclosures is much greater in the African-American community. When we focused on particular lenders, we found that one lender in particular was an outlier, Wells Fargo. This mapped the Wells Fargo foreclosures. Wells Fargo, four times more likely for there to be a foreclosure in a black community than a white community in, in Baltimore. The same was true when we looked at the numbers in Memphis. Memphis, intensely segregated as well. You can see the African American and the white neighborhoods. When we looked at foreclosures, the pattern was the same foreclosures much more intensely in the black neighborhoods. And when we focused on Wells Fargo, seven times more likely to go to foreclosure in a black neighborhood in Memphis than a white neighborhood. The question was why? When we looked at where the high cost loans were, and these are loans that are the Treasury defines as high cost, and they're synonymous with, in some cases, in many cases, predatory loans, because the pricing is so high, we found that the higher cost loans were in the black neighborhoods predominantly. The same was true in Memphis. And when we looked at Memphis for where the low cost loans were, these are the prime rate loans, look where they came. They fell in the white neighborhoods. So when we put in Memphis the foreclosures, which relate to the high cost loans, side by side with the low cost loans, we see that Wells Fargo knew how to make low cost loans in white neighborhoods, but seemingly did not know how to make those loans in the minority neighborhoods. And that, we suggested, might be a reason for why the rates of foreclosure were so different. In 2009, based on statistics, largely, we filed lawsuits on behalf of the city of Memphis and the city of Baltimore against Wells Fargo. We alleged that Wells Fargo was targeting minority communities for predatory loans, and that was the reason for the higher rates of foreclosure. Here was the basic premise. There were a lot of statistics I don't have time to take you into, but this, this premise was this. It was, Wells Fargo is in the business of predicting risk. How was it that they were seven times more likely to get the risk prediction wrong in black neighborhoods in Memphis than in white neighborhoods? They had access to the same information about borrowers. They had the same underwriting tools. They had the same automated underwriting engine. Yet they got it wrong seven times more likely to get it wrong in black neighborhoods than in white neighborhoods. Why? What is it about the color of the neighborhood that makes the difference? If you don't have the information, you don't make the loan. It didn't make sense. Shortly after we filed... Several employees from Wells Fargo came forward. They called up on the phone. They literally called up on the phone and said, we want to tell you we've got it exactly right. 
Let me tell you what one of these employees said. Her name was Beth Jacobson. She worked at Wells Fargo for seven years. She said, we were trained in Baltimore. I worked in Baltimore. I was in the subprime department. We were trained to target African-American zip codes. We were trained to target African-American churches. Employees were signed on the basis of race. We had marketing groups that were set up specifically to target African-American communities. And we had a software that was a marketing software that had a drop-down menu that one of the languages you could select, this was how to market, was language African-American. Another employee, Tony, Tony Pascal, he found this so offensive he complained and he was fired. He also came forward to talk about what happened. And she said, this is basically how it works. There were financial incentives for us to make predatory or high-cost loans. We made more money from the commission on high-cost loans, even if we got a referral from somebody else at 40% of the rate, than if we made the loan ourselves as a prime loan. She made $750,000 in her in 2004 on commissions alone. She had been a paralegal before that, making about $40,000 a year. She said, it, we had our ways of getting people into high-cost loans. Here's how we did it. We used what we called liar loans or stated income loans. We said, you don't have to give us documentation about how much you make. We'll just put you in, and but that will trigger a high-cost loan. They falsified loan applications. They told borrowers not to make down payments. That also would trigger a higher cost loan. They didn't tell them about lower cost products. There were supposedly filters, but she said we knew how to get around it. What this did was it gave clear, it connected the dots for us. If you're putting people into higher cost loans when they can afford a lower cost loan, you are going to lead people into something they can't afford. And that's exactly what happened. And in so many cases, that caused unnecessary foreclosures. If you target black communities, it follows that you're going to have higher foreclosure rates in those communities. We had many, many ex-employees come forward and corroborate that evidence, both in Memphis and in Baltimore. What did this do? This process stripped equity out of communities of color. Between 2000 and 2008, it is believed that any, approximately $200 billion was, of equity stripped out of communities of color. And later, another $200 billion between 2009 and 12. If you look at the decrease in, in median household net worth, you can see that Hispanics and African Americans lost 66% and 53% of their net worth between 2005 and 2009, compared to whites who only lost 16%. These numbers are shocking, and it's because most of this net worth that was lost was from the value you had, the equity you had in your home, a, a direct result of this process. We know that this, these foreclosures resulted in resegregation. In other words, it made it harder for people to move to opportunity, to better neighborhoods. It raised the barriers to integration. It took us backwards from the progress we had made for 40 years towards the goal of integration. We also know that it accelerated flight of higher income families. We know segregation has negative effects on education and health and all sorts of other social ramifications. These have been studied and studied over and over by sociologists. The connection of the debilitation of these policies of banks like Wells Fargo is very clear and what equity stripping does. The cost to the municipalities was the basis for standing of these lawsuits. We said that these vacancies, unnecessary vacancies, caused the city to board properties, clean them, stabilize, repair water damage. There were police department calls. There were fire department calls. And in Baltimore, they kept a database of exactly how much they spent on every property for what those costs were. And you can see, we documented that in the case. So these are properties where we actually calculated exactly how much it costs to board and to clean those, those properties. There was a second basis for injury, and that is that abandoned properties caused neighboring properties to go down in value. And we alleged that that reduction in, in the assessed property value resulted in tax losses to the city that we had experts uh, calculate. So that was the basis for the injury. Ultimately, um, our suit led to the Justice Department getting involved. 
conducting their own investigation where they actually brought a nationwide case. They were actually able to look at loan files and run regression analyses, found that African Americans were in fact charged more across the country by Wells Fargo. And in 2012, um, the case settled for $175 million and there was a, two victims and money to cities, including Baltimore and Memphis, and there was an additional um, $100 million that was paid after that for a different type of lending, that, but also predatory lending, that Wells Fargo did. All right, a second case I want to touch on, which is a different version, and then I want to talk about the lessons from it, which is a different version, is a case involving a for-profit student uh, um, uh, a for-profit vocational uh, uh, educational institution called Richmond School of Health and Technology in Richmond, Virginia. RSHT had two campuses, and what they essentially did was they gave out certificates for practical nursing, for medical assistant, for surgical technology, and so forth. It's private. They charge between ten dollars and $28,000 for a program that might last 9, 10, 12, 15 months. What we found out from ex-employees who came to us was that there was huge fraud. And here's how the scheme worked. They brought students in. They altered the W-2 form so the students would qualify. They would forge their signatures. They would send in for government loan dollars, get those loan dollars, which once they came across the threshold, was their money. The students were given a sham education. The teachers wouldn't show up. There were no books. They offered them internships and lied about it. There were no internships available. The stuff was incredible. The students couldn't pass the exams, and they ended up behind on loans to the tune of ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. They couldn't afford to pay them back. Their futures were ruined. They kept them in school by altering their grades. The teachers were pressured to pass the students in. But here's the civil rights issue. Richmond is segregated, just like Baltimore and Memphis, you can see from the maps. What we saw was that the school was heavily African-American, even though Richmond is not. And we said, if this is only about poor students being targeted for a sham education to enrich this for-profit school at the government and taxpayers' expense, why is it the school is overwhelmingly African-American? Is it that there's targeting going on, just as there was in Wells Fargo? And indeed, when we started to talk to the students and we started to talk to ex-employees, just like Beth Jacobson, they told us the real story. They said, we were in fact directed to target, um, just let me go back one, we were directed to target the minority community in Richmond. We went to minority schools. We advertised on BET. We advertised on hip-hop stations. There was a phrase in Richmond called being on the bus line, which meant locally, it meant you are on the bus route that takes you into the minority community of Richmond. That was, everybody understood what that meant, and that's how they pitched, that's how they advertised. They said, we literally, the ex-employees who signed declarations in the case said, this is what we were told to do, because that's where vulnerable people were who would be, we could dupe into this scam. We filed a class action. It ended up settling for 4,000 students received $5 million. The school tried to hide a lot of its assets, but this money all went back to the students uh, to pay back, help them pay back some of their loans. Now I want to talk about what is this that I'm talking about Then I want to quickly get to the Supreme Court case and then turn it over to Tara. What I'm talking about is something that I call, this is my phrase, my phrase, structural racism. Both of these practices are what I call structural racism. What is it? It is a practice that exploits historic discrimination, the segregation that you saw on those maps, and that spatial segregation for private or political gain. Wells Fargo says, we just followed where the need was. It was the free market. But what they were really doing, in my view, was exploiting underserved communities and exploiting those segregated communities because they knew right where they were going. They knew where the fault lines were. They knew where the race lines were to make money. Why do people do it? Why do companies do it? Or why would a government, a municipality do it? Because profit for a private company or power, if it's a political entity such as a government, can be extracted more easily from an underserved community that's been made vulnerable by decades of historic discrimination. 
That is the point I want you to understand. That's why equity stripping is not an equal opportunity equity stripping. Equity stripping goes to the place that is most vulnerable. And race and economic disparity in this country go together. They always have. Those maps, they tell you the picture. Don't forget those maps. It's a story that's replayed over and over again in America. The harm is that it creates new barriers to integration, it perpetuates segregation, and it strips equity from minority and underserved communities. Look, all of the things we're talking about, we have names for them. We call them redlining. We call them, that's when you deny a good, uh, a good product to a minority community. Or reverse redlining, that's where you target a bad product. That's what Wells Fargo did, or what RSHT did to a minority community. Or steering. All of these things violate the Fair Housing Act. Why? Because historically, the Fair Housing Act has been about not just breaking down overt or de jure barriers to, to discrimination. That's the non-discrimination principle. But it has been about integration, the goal of achieving integration, because Congress at the time, 68 and again in 88, understood, as has every court, 11 circuits that have endorsed the use of impact theory, have concluded that we need to address the evils of segregation if we're going to deal with economic disparity in this country. Okay, so now you see that the whole theory of impact, which focuses on outcomes, it doesn't focus on intent, it focuses on outcomes. That theory is central to the purpose of the Fair Housing Act. If you believe that the Fair Housing Act was designed to get at the goal of integration, if you think it's only about breaking down de jure discrimination, then you can make the argument we should only have intent. And that's what's up before the Supreme Court today. One thing I want to talk about quickly is that the way impact works is not a gotcha strategy. It's not that if the numbers come out one way, you're guilty of discrimination. It is that if there is an impact, that's stage one. Stage two is then the government or the private institution like Wells Fargo has to come up with an explanation, a justification for why there is an impact. Wells Fargo might say, well, it has to do with economic realities of where things are. And then the third step is, is there a less discriminatory alternative? In other words, could Wells Fargo have achieved the same goal, right, with less impact? Could they have separated out good risk from bad risk with, uh, and, and made money uh, with less impact? Clearly they could have, because what they were doing here was deliberately targeting people for loans that they, when they could, for bad loans, when they could have qualified for good loans. But that's why impact has worked, because it's a reasonable approach that says it's not a gotcha, it's just, let's figure out a way to do it better. If there is one, let's do it. If there's less discriminatory alternatives. If there's not, we don't worry about it. Then you're not guilty of discrimination. Okay, what was up in front of the Supreme Court today? So for a long time now, there have been, there's been an effort by conservatives, particularly those who wanted to stop the, the fair lending enforcement effort of the government, to get the issue of impact before the court. And the argument goes like this. Nothing in the statutory language of the Fair Housing Act addresses specifically impact. It uses the words because of. And without getting into the details, there was a Supreme Court case involving the age Discrimination in Employment Act, the ADEA, a couple of years ago, City of Jackson case, in which a plurality of the court raised questions about whether that because of language was intent language or was it impact language. But in that statute, there was also language that said you can't discriminate or otherwise do something that would adversely affect people in protected groups. And the conservatives said that language adversely affect is not in the Fair Housing Act. Hence, following city of Jackson, um, there should be no impact claim um, under, uh, under uh, uh, the Fair Housing Act. That was what was before the court. But remember I told you that every circuit for the last 45 years that has looked at the issue has said that impact is consistent with the purpose of, of the act notwithstanding any issues about language. And one more important fact. Recently, HUD passed a regulation interpreting the act, consistent with all those precedents, to say impact is consistent with the purpose. It is in the law because it addresses the very things that 
I've been talking about, the outcomes that we're concerned about. And there is a doctrine called Chevron deference that says, many of you may know about it, that says typically the Supreme Court is supposed to defer to the agency's interpretation of a law for which they're responsible for interpreting. So HUD's responsible for interpreting the Fair Housing Act. They issue a regulation, properly so, that says impact is covered. The Supreme Court is supposed to, even if there is ambiguity, if there's any ambiguity, defer to HUD. Yet the Supreme Court took the case. Not once. They took it twice before. The cases were settled. This is the third time they've taken the case. And obviously, that's grounds for a lot of advocates, folks like us who rely on impact, to say, wait a second, what's going on here? We heard reports about the argument today. I'm not going to speculate about the outcome. Nobody knows what the Supreme Court's going to do. You should read the argument and come to your own conclusion. But I want to say, what does it mean ultimately if the Supreme Court should rule that impact is not covered? I want to say two things, and then I'm going to sit down and turn it over to Tara. One is, if you look at the cases we've brought over the last 15 years in the firm, the cases I've been involved in for 25 years of litigating, almost every single case we've won has involved some component of intent. Our winning cases involve intent. Maybe an impact claim in it, but they are also intent cases. I, I propose to you, or I suggest to you, that nothing is really going to change in that respect. We will still look for intent evidence. But some of the cases that we focus on, where we use statistics to create, to, to raise a red flag that then allows people like someone like Abbas Jacobson to come forward, or the pleading burdens that we will have initially may become more difficult if we lose impact. It's a way our safety net is gone and the stakes become higher. For instance, we're working on a case now in New York City that we filed where we've challenged bans that private landlords have on renting to anyone with a criminal record. This has huge disparate impact. 85% of the people in the state of New York coming out of prison or jail are Hispanic or African American and male. When you have a law that says any misdemeanor or not a law, when you have a private rule that says that any misdemeanor or felony means you can't live here, you are essentially saying to huge numbers of people in protected classes, African Americans uh, and, and Hispanics, you have no place to live in New York City. This is a massive problem for us right now, for your generation. We need impact to be able to address that. What's the less discriminatory alternative? Just evaluate people on an individual basis. No blanket bans. If you're worried about their record, look at them as a person. Decide what's the evidence of rehabilitation? What's the evidence of mitigation? What's the evidence of how bad was the crime? How long ago did it happen? But evaluate people on an individual basis. Not saying you can't keep them out if you conclude that they can't meet the qualifications of tenancy, but no blanket bans, right? That's the less discriminatory, less discriminatory alternative. That's how impact helps us achieve our goals under the Fair Housing Act. That's going to be harder to do at a federal level if the Supreme Court takes it away. Finally, I want to say, like everything else, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We will live to fight another day no matter what the Supreme Court does. We will build our intent cases because we're good at building intent cases. One of the things I suggest, and I'm going to be talking about this over the next six months a lot, is that I think we have to rethink, as civil rights lawyers, what it means to be a civil rights lawyer. What do I mean by that? Up until now, we have said, civil rights lawyer means you use traditional civil rights statutes. I want to propose to you that we need, now need to think about other statutes, like consumer protection laws like UDAP, that's Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices, like the False Claims Act, like other laws that ferret out fraud or misleading conduct or deception or the types of things that we were worried about that Wells Fargo and RSHT were doing that has the effect, that has the effect of stripping equity out of underserved communities. And the impact claim may not be in the case as a race claim, but the remedy, if we win under these laws, will have a disproportionate impact, a beneficial one, on communities of color. And we will achieve the same outcome as a result. And that's, in the end, what we care about. 
Let me sit down now and let Tara talk for just a couple of minutes about what happened in a couple of these cases uh, and how impact and intent work together. Um, thanks, John, and I'll be, I'll be quick to make sure that we get to hear from all of our, our panelists today. Um, but I just want to circle back to the um, Wells Fargo cases and RSHT um, and look at sort of what those cases were about, right? So there's an impact claim in there, but we also have intent claims there. And so often we find that these two things are completely intertwined. Um, so, you know, what, what defense do you hear from a defendant with an impact claim, right? Well, I'm a disproportionate bad actor. It's, it's a bad product, but it's affecting uh, minorities and white communities in the exact same way. So, but what we saw in, in Richmond and in Baltimore and in Memphis, that as we dug into the statistics, we see that it's not an equal opportunity bad actor, right? You're seeing, even if you hold constant for um, credit scores or uh, levels of education and who's, who's going to be the potential student at a for-profit school, we're still seeing vastly disproportionate numbers. And so that tells us something else is going on here. And so in, in cases where you might see something like that initially before you file a suit, the easy thing to do is to file just an impact case, right? And under um, case law with, with an impact case, case, intent evidence is relevant to proving your impact case. So you open up into discovery, you start to gather evidence, and you figure out, hey, we're right, there's intentional marketing happening here, there's intentional, um, there are incentives given to, to go into African-American communities, black communities, Latino communities. And so then we, we can amend to bring uh, an intent claim in addition to that and proceed with, a, with intent evidence. So I think what it, what it means for us now, if we were to not have impact, um, is that we just have to, our, our complaints have to be very robust. That is our general approach anyway. RSHT, uh, uh, Memphis, and Baltimore cases, they were filed as both in, impact and, and intent. Um, and so, but when you, because I have a case right now, we have a case in New York, it's, uh, we're representing eight plaintiffs against Emigrant Bank. And that case was filed as a reverse redlining case with a predatory loan product that we found was disproportionately targeted at minority communities. We filed that case initially as an impact case, and then as we went into discovery, we had a, a judge who understood the impact standard, allowed us to get discovery on, um, on intent issues, and we amended to, to have an intent case. And so we're going forward now. Whatever happens uh, with the Supreme Court won't, won't affect our case um, long term in terms of uh, remedies and uh, liability. That said, that case is a case that now we might spend a little bit more time before filing, looking at the statistics, really digging in, and making sure that we can plead intent with Iqbal and Twombly um, and, and use the statistics to really show that this is not just an impact issue, it's also intent. Um, and finally, I just wanted to, to add a note that you know, there are other statutes out there. So there's a COA, um, the Equal Credit, Opportunity, Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which allows for, for impact, um, and then state law. So in a case um, where, with uh, blanket bans on criminal records, you're filing in New York. New York State, New York City, they have very robust fair housing protections that include intent claim, I'm sorry, include impact as part of the statute. And so you're not going to lose the ability to, in a case like that, um, file on an impact-only only case. Um, so that, I'll, I'll stop there and let our other panelists talk, and happy to answer any questions about that. Terrence, so. um, do you want to help switch the slides over? Um, so the, um, the Supreme Court case comes out of a certain set of facts in Texas, right? So, so the allegations in the underlying lawsuit was, were brought by a, a nonprofit that's involved in a kind of integrationist campaign to have low-income residents um, use housing vouchers and other housing subsidies to live in uh, more integrated neighborhoods. And they challenged the Texas Housing Finance um, Agency's practice of approving assisted housing developments in uh, nearly exclusively minority neighborhoods and not approving, um, no, it's the other, it's the other file, and not approving uh, applications for assisted developments in white areas. So I thought it'd be interesting to take that kind of fact pattern and look at Chicago and see kind of how, how we, how our city would play out under that kind of analysis. Uh, yeah, perfect. All right, so there's some data that was prepared by the Institute for Housing Studies at DePaul, um, working for the city of Chicago, um, looking at city of Chicago demographics. And in this report, there's a report that shows, there's a map that shows where in the city of Chicago are the assisted developments? So the darker colors on this map show where we have government-assisted affordable housing projects. The darker the blue color, the higher the percentage of uh, assisted developments in those areas. So you can see the darkest blue um, colors of the greatest concentration 
are kind of tracing down the south side of Chicago, and there's a spur out on the west side of Chicago. And if you superimpose this, then, uh, on the demographic map that we saw earlier, I'm also a fan of the dot maps, um, you can see how it tracks the, the racial demographics of Chicago. So again, the green dots are African-American black areas um, stretching down the south side of Chicago and out to the west. We have the Latino, Hispanic neighborhoods in Pilsen there as well. So just comparing these two maps, you can see how the location of the assisted developments is sort of mapping onto the racial demographics of Chicago. Um, now this is showing the snapshot of what's true in, under the 2010 census. So this is a pattern that's developed maybe over years, decades. Um, what's happening now with the approval of projects by our housing finance uh, agencies? Uh, you can find this information too. The city of Chicago uh, puts out its list of approved affordable housing uh, developments that it's financing. Um, this is the latest round um, that they that they published. And if you look at the chart, the highlighted um, neighborhood areas are all on the south, west, south and west sides of Chicago. The unhighlighted areas here on this, on this far right column are in the predominantly white north side neighborhoods. So we are, are seeing housing subsidies and, housing, and subsidized housing projects being developed on the south and west sides uh, much more readily than we're seeing on the, on the north part of the city. Um, the, the underlying Supreme Court case talks a lot about how the Texas um, Finance Authority allocated its housing subsidies across the state, um, and it looked at um, the so-called qualified allocation plan, which is basically the, the federally mandated plan that each jurisdiction has to adopt for how it's going to allocate a certain kind of housing subsidy across different developments called the low-income housing tax credit. And this is really the big gorilla of, how, of affordable housing finance. This is the major subsidy program. And there are just a couple of features in the city and the state allocation plans I want to draw your attention to. So some of their priorities, they talk about we're going to prioritize um, subsidizing developments that are trying to replace public housing units with new mixed income developments. Um, so that's one of the priorities. Uh, and then to preserve... Um, federally assisted housing that maybe was developed in the late 60s, early 70s with the long-term affordability restriction that's now expiring. And we want to preserve that housing and keep it going as affordable housing uh, for the future. So these are, these are both, you know, on their face, I think, very good policies, good public policy rationales for each of them. Um, the housing authority in Chicago and across the country is tearing down old public housing high-rises that really concentrated poverty and trying to build mixed-income developments. And it seems to make sense to preserve developments where we already have put in uh, subsidies to make them affordable. Let's keep those going. Um, the problem, of course, is, is this. And I, I put a quote on from a, from a planning journal, but you could, this is just sort of the, the received wisdom, and it's also true that there has been a, a Disgrace, as the quote says, a disgraceful legacy of blatant discrimination in the operation of our, of our public housing programs. Um, this slide in the upper uh, quadrant there is the first Mayor Daley uh, approving the siting of the Hilliard Homes around uh, 22nd and State. Um, and you can just look at that group and say, hmm, should we trust these people to make racially sensitive decisions about where to place our subsidized housing? Uh, I don't know. Uh, there's a very accessible and, and uh, lively account of this in the book American Pharaoh, which I recommend. Um, so the problem, of course, is if we're going to be preserving public housing uh, and we're going to be preserving um, assisted housing that we've already developed, uh, we have a history of deliberately siting that housing in segregated areas, so we're kind of doubling down on the historic segregation. Um, briefly, I want to talk about a disparate impact case that's currently pending in Chicago that I think is really not a, um, an intent case, but truly is an impact case. Uh, and it was brought by a group of public housing residents against the Chicago Housing Authority. And it involves Cabrini Green, which is uh, around um, Chicago Avenue and Halstead, for those of you who don't know Chicago all that well. And this is the site plan of the old Cabrini. A lot of this is, is torn down now. You see high rises uh, sort of toward the top of the screen and down the right. What this lawsuit is about is this area here that shows up. Uh, these are the Cabrini row houses. 
And this is a group of public housing buildings developed in the 40s through the 60s, um, where CHA had declared uh, early on in its plan for transformation that it was going to preserve all, say, 400 units of this housing and use it as, uh, continue to use it as public housing. Um, a couple of years ago, CHA changed its mind and said, you know what, for these 400 units, we're going to um, redevelop them and make them mixed income housing, uh, where only a third of the units will be used for public housing, resulting in a loss of about 280 public housing units uh, from the location. Um, they're also going to, uh, we're hoping to change the street grid, which will cause more uh, of these properties to be lost, further reducing the number of public housing units that will be brought back uh, on site. So what the lawsuit is about um, is a challenge to this, to this policy, saying that by the housing authority tearing down this group of row houses, uh, if you look at what's going to happen to the residents who are there now, they're likely going to be given vouchers, housing vouchers, to take them to the private marketplace, or they'll be moved to other uh, subsidized developments, um, the majority of which are going to be on the south and west sides of Chicago, which are predominantly minority neighborhoods. So we have this interesting case where um, I think everyone involved in this case is pursuing an integrationist policy. The housing authority wants to integrate communities by breaking up concentrations of public housing. Um, the advocacy community who supports that policy, for instance, um, Business Professionals for the Public Interest, which is a, a very well-regarded um, housing nonprofit in Chicago, um, they want to break up concentrated poverty, and they don't like the row houses staying 100% um, public housing because it just looks like a, uh, to them like a kind of an isolated pod of public housing and otherwise uh, kind of area of opportunity. Versus the residents who are there now who want, to, who want to stay in that old town neighborhood that has lots of jobs and better schools and is really improving. So it's, it's here I don't think that there's really a, currently, a, you can draw your own conclusions, but currently a bad guy who has discriminatory intent. What we're really talking about is the impact of even well-intentioned policies that could be disproportionately adversely affecting minority communities. And I think if we lose the disparate impact cause of action, thanks to the Supreme Court, it's going to be much, much more difficult to bring this kind of policy to light and to cause the CHA to have to stand up and justify it in federal court before a federal judge. Thank you. Um, so I want to make sure that the audience gets a chance to, to ask some questions. So I will go ahead and open it up for questions. And if, um, if people don't have questions right away, I, I also have some questions too. But I'll, let, let's, let's see. Uh, I'm, I'm sure people probably, probably have, um, have questions. And um, yes, please go ahead. Yes. Uh, you spoke earlier about how the Supreme Court, in spite of the unanimous lower court decisions and Chevron doctrine, uh, willing to hear this case. Uh, what do you attribute to that? And also, touching on the same question, do you feel like disparate impact in other regards outside of housing could be in jeopardy as well? So I think the answer to the question, I'll, let me take the second one first. It all depends on what the Supreme Court says and how it says it. So Tara mentioned that there's the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. There are other statutes that deal with impact. If the Supreme Court were to issue a decision saying impact is not in the Fair Housing Act and they were to um, address that issue very broadly, potentially other statutes could be in play. But if they simply stick with the language of the Fair Housing Act, then I don't think that necessarily says what will happen with another statute. ECOA, for just one example, has its own legislative history. It has a regulation from the Fed that makes a clear impact is there. It has different statutory language. So I think we just have to see how it turns out. I can't, I can't predict. Why did the Supreme Court take it? It's a good question. I mean, that's what causes so much consternation. I mean, normally you think if there's no split in the circuits, if all the, the interpretations have been that this is part of the law and part of the purpose, there were 1988 amendments that were, we think, consistent with the notion that impact is part of the law. Um, why would the Supreme There were at least four votes, right? At least four votes that said, we want to hear this. The question would be, why? There's been a trend in the Supreme Court to focus among the conservative wing, to focus on only race-conscious behavior, only race-conscious behavior, and say, 
If it's not race-conscious behavior, then, it, then it's not part of the law. And this is a point that I really wanted to, to make, and I want to make sure it gets across clearly, which is that if you're worried about these outcomes, if you're worried about structural racism, then it doesn't really matter whether I can actually show that the president of Wells Fargo intended deliberately to go after black communities. It shouldn't matter whether there's a smoking gun, whether someone wanted to discriminate. The question is, if we're going to get past this, if we're going to deal with economic and racial injustice, we've got to deal with the effects of these policies. And the most effective way to do that is through a standard of liability that focuses on outcomes, reasonably so. And I would argue that 11 circuits have said no problem with this statute for 45 years because they think impact has worked in a reasonable way to get us better, to get us to a better outcome. You know, and what, 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 what Jeff was saying here was that, you know, this, th these LAHTC tax credits, they're so important because these vouchers, which allow you to move to opportunity, if you have a voucher, even if you don't make enough money, you can move to a community of opportunity, right? Better schools, maybe a white community in many cases, but it's better schools, better access to jobs, right? But landlords will not take those vouchers in lots of cases. If it's an LIHTC tax credit property, you have to take the vouchers. So where the government places and approves those LIHTC tax credits is critical. If they're all placed or disproportionately placed in minority communities, you can't move to opportunity. That's why it matters so much. And that's the basic point I want to get across. That's what this Texas case is all about, right? Sure, numbers matter in that case. Because if all of the LHCC properties are in the minority communities of Dallas and of Texas as a state, even if I have a voucher, I can't move to where the better schools are. I can't move to where the better jobs are. It's not just a theoretical question. It's a real question that affects real people. We can't deal with the problem we have. Question? Yes, sir. Back. Um, what are the concerns do we have with vouchers? Are there other problems that are leading to vouchers not being a sort of big solution to the problem of, of segregated housing, besides the one you mentioned? I mean, well, I mean, definitely. I mean, there, there are all sorts of, I mean, it's not, I and mean, vouchers is, is an effort to find a remedy to, to you know, one remedy to the, to, the, to the problem. But where credit flows, where dollars go, whether it's loan dollars that are being made available for good education on a, at a fair price, um, whether it's dollars to refinance your home or whether it's dollars to buy a home, right, where the credit goes, whether you can get homeowner's insurance, there has been redlining in by the insurance industry in minority communities for a long time with a view that these were not good communities to insure, at first overtly, then with policies that had an, a huge impact, right? But, but yes, there's lots of ways that the dollars don't make it to underserved communities. And I'd say, for all of you guys, for this next generation, just follow where the money goes. That's what civil rights is about in, in the 21st century. Follow the money trail. The dollars have to get there. The investment dollars have to get there. If they don't, we have no hope. Can I just add uh, about the vouchers? Um, so the studies of, of voucher users have shown that absent a lot of, of counseling and guidance, um, people tend to use the vouchers in neighborhoods similar to the one that they're starting from. So voucher holders tend to, to reconcentrate, again, in predominantly low-income Probably minority neighborhoods. Um, and that's partly a matter of sort of personal comfort and choice, um, uh, partly a matter of landlords uh, having the ability to refuse voucher holders in many jurisdictions. And partly the way the voucher program is structured, you can't rent a luxury apartment or you know, a very expensive apartment under the voucher rules because there's a cap on, on what the rent can be to apply your voucher to it. So some neighborhoods are just sort of out of bounds. Plus, lots of suburbs don't have apartments, right? They're zoned, so they're only single family. So good luck using a voucher there. Um, so there's a, a host of changes we could make to the voucher program to make it work better and make it more integrated. And to that point, what I, the crazy thing about this case that's now before the Supreme Court is that the fifth sort, so the district court said found impact and said now the burden is on 
Texas to come up with a less discriminatory alternative. That goes up to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit says, yes, impact does exist under this law. It's legit. But you got the burden wrong. Under the HUD reg, the burden is on the plaintiffs to show the less discriminatory alternative. So the process started to find a less discriminatory alternative to the plant, to the way they assign points. And Texas started to do it when they moved for CERT. They were starting to do it. They were actually finding a fairer way to distribute these tax credit properties. The thing was working just the way we wanted to. Texas was happy. They were getting their point system done under under the program. But it was just a fairer distribution meeting their goals. They were redoing it. Then they sought CERT. I have all sorts of speculation as to why, but I think it was a different agenda, a desire to say, where people taking a law in a different direction. We don't want economic institutions in this country to be held to a standard of outcome, even if it is an outcome that is better for you because you can still make as much money as ever. You can still find people who are bad risk and people who are good risk. You can just have a less discriminatory way of doing it. You can find more people in underserved communities who are good credit risk, so you're achieving both goals. You're making more opportunity available, but you're still actually making as much or more money because you're finding more qualified people to make loans to. In this case, Texas is meeting their goal of meeting their point system under the law, but they're finding a fairer distribution across the state between uh, communities of opportunity and those that are not. It was working when it goes up to the Supreme Court on now what I would say is an abstract ideological grounds that really focuses on semantics. What, let's parse the meaning of a word. What does otherwise make unavailable or deny mean, right? We're, we're, we're debating, you know, we're debating hairs when we should be focused on the broader purpose of what Congress passed this law for in the first place and the ills of the country that we were trying to remedy. That's what this is about. It's like, folks, let's get real. Let's get back to what it's all about, right? Do we care about these issues or do we not? Last thing I'll say about this is housing lies at the fulcrum of all civil rights. Where you live determines what opportunities you have for education, for jobs, for everything. If we can't get this spatial segregation right, we can't get anything right. Everything you heard the president talk about last night, about middle class initiatives, we can't do any of that if we cannot get this basic question of spatial segregation, economic and racial injustice and inequality. If we can't get that right, we can't get anything right. That's what you guys got to focus on going forward. That's what... For those of you who care about these issues, that's what you got to focus on. All right, and we are out of time. Thank you, everyone. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. 